The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. The Lord, with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's take a couple of moments of silent prayer to make sure that if that we're in fellowship, if there's any unconfessed sin that we need to deal with, we have that opportunity to use 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we live in this nation, this unique nation of all history in terms of the freedoms that we enjoy, the prosperity that we have been blessed with, the heritage that is ours both in terms of our secular history and the roots that we have in our Judeo-Christian heritage. We thank you that we still have the freedom to teach your word openly, to speak freely, and to witness about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we still can send out missionaries from our country to foreign shores to communicate the gospel, and we pray that you would continue to prosper us. Father, as we look at our nation now, there are many, many things that we see that are going on that remind us of the dark days of Israel in the Old Testament. We see a return to paganism. We see the relativism that is, faces us in every direction. We see the uh, horrible... Uh, perversity that takes place in our country that uh, affects our children and challenges those who are parents to guard diligently their, their children so that they can protect them from these influences. Father, we know that the only solution is your word, that there is not a political solution that can solve these problems. There is not an economic solution that can solve these problems. There is only the spiritual solution, which is a return to your word and to doctrinal principles in the life of the nation. And so, Father, we pray that those who are believers, who are positive to your word, would be faithful as a witness that as the pivot, as the remnant in this nation, that they would provide a strong turning point and a frame of reference or a blessing point for the remainder of the nation. Now, Father, as we are here this morning, as we study your word, we pray that we would be challenged by the things that we study, that you would help us to understand how these things relate together in our understanding of the Old Testament. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue our study of the Old Testament, and today we're going to look at the future for Israel. We need to take a little time to review. As we saw at the very beginning, as we looked at Genesis 2, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we saw that the purpose of man to be was to be a vicegerent of God over the earth. That term vicegerent means that he is a designated representative of God to rule in God's place over the creation. So he, man starts at a high point. This morning as I was driving in, and I mean early this morning, as I was driving in from the airport, I was trying to think through a new chart to try to pull this together. Man starts off at a high point when God creates him in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. He is created in the image and likeness of God. This refers both to his immaterial makeup that man is in one sense theomorphic. 
That means he is an expression of God. He is created uh, in the form that God would take to the best form possible that God can use to express who and what he is. Now, what I mean by that is that God in his omniscience knew in eternity past that man would sin, that this creature would sin. And he knew that to solve that sin problem, he would take on, he would incarnate himself in that creature as the highest form of his revelation. Therefore, he designed a creature, not just by happenstance, but he designs a creature that in terms of his creatureliness is the highest possible or the best form, the best makeup, both immaterially and materially, for God, uh, best form for God to take in order to reveal who He is. If, if there were a thousand other creatures, for example, we think of all the odd creatures that show up in science fiction movies, there may be a thousand or a million different types of creatures our imaginations could come up with. God, of course, knew about all of those possibilities from eternity past, and He created man to be the way he is because he knew he would eventually incarnate himself as a man. And so man had to be the best possible expression. If you were to take infinite God and bring him down to a creaturely level, he, he is like man. That's what I mean by theomorphic. Man does not just look this way by chance. Every aspect of our being comes this way because God has designed it as the best way to eventually represent himself. So image has the idea of not only the immaterial aspect, but also this representational idea. Man is designed to represent God, and of course this is in perfect environment, and man is to rule over the earth. But there is a fall, so we're going to draw this horizontal dashed line here just below the X, and that indicates the fall. So man falls into sin, acquires a sin nature, and we'll label this point X below the fall. And there is a, there's salvation there and redemption after the fall for Adam and Eve. But then we see that there is a deterioration and decline morally and spiritually down to the point of the flood. And then there is, in, in, in a relative sense, there is an elevation because we see the spiritual value, the spiritual qualities of Noah and his family, they're all believers, and so they start off back up at this point where all the human beings on the earth, right after the flood, are believers and positive. Then there is a further decline down to the Tower of Babel. God, at that point, judges the human race, scatters the race on the basis of languages and the diversity of languages, and he comes back up to start with one regenerate man, Abraham. So here we have Noah's family at this point, high point, and Abraham's family at this point. And God is going to work specifically through this one family to the entire nation. And the goal, of course, is that man is to, designed to rule the creation as God, as God's representative in his place. But because man is below the, the, the fall line, and everything is affected by that. The entire history of the Bible is designed eventually to bring man back up above that line to fulfill the creation covenant mandates of Genesis 1, 26 to 27. So God calls out Abraham, and through him he is going to have a special nation, the nation Israel, and that nation is going to be the priest nation and in some sense, they are taking the place, although every single individual human being is still in the image, it is now specifically through this corporate being of the nation Israel that God is going to work. We saw that in Exodus 19, 5 and 6a, which is a key verse, central passage for understanding God's redemptive purposes through the nation Israel. Now then, it says, If you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, then you, will, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So we see in this the reference to that all the earth is mine under the, under the sovereignty of God. He is the God who, who is in control of history. He is in control of the nations and their destinies, and that there is this contractual relationship with, with man. We got, have to continuously go back to this covenant concept 
from Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God is the only God. If you look at all the, all the religions on the earth, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Shintoism, whatever it may be, you look at all the religions on the earth and God, the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible, is the only God that enters into a legal, contractual relationship with His creatures. And everything He does is within this framework of a legal contract. That's why the very concept of law is not based on relativism or, or social, uh, whatever is socially pragmatic. It, is, it has to be based on an absolute. And ultimately, if you're thinking in terms of a philosophy of law, that has to go back to the character of God. All law is grounded in, in God and is grounded in that initial creation covenant concept that God, even with perfect creatures in the garden, structures His relationships on the basis of law. That's why when we come over into the New Testament and we start talking about the essential nature of salvation, we say it's not experience-based. It is Justification is forensic. It is legal. Everything takes place in terms of this legal structure that God has established throughout uh, history as, as the parameters for governing His relationship. So Israel is called out to fulfill this task, and we see that there is a decline... They're called out. There's a decline and there's ups and downs all through the nation Israel until finally they're taken out in divine discipline. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they both go out under divine discipline. And we see that by the end of the southern kingdom, really 586, they've deteriorated and they're as pagan in their culture as uh, the, the culture prior to the fall, I mean prior to the flood and the culture at Babel. They've just rejected God and substituted idolatry and the phallic cult and the fertility religions and everything else. And then God is going to come in at the end of this. All of this is preparatory. We know that there are these dispensational distinctives, uh, the age of the Gentiles, the age of Israel. And the purpose here that God is showing is that man is completely incapable of meeting God's absolute standards. That's why we have the whole Old Testament in one sense. God is demonstrating through His relationship with Israel and Israel's response without the Holy Spirit, without that, that level of divine help, that man is completely incapable of meeting God's standards on his own. That's why the law was given. We're studying that in Romans 7 on our Wednesday night class that the law is given to reveal man's inability not to give man a means by achieve, to achieve a relationship with God. And so it's going to be at the cross at the incarnation when the second person of the Trinity becomes flesh, undiminished deity takes on true humanity, that we now have the new Adam. Here was the first Adam, and here is the second Adam, and it is the second Adam that is going to fulfill all of the divine requirements. At the cross, He pays the penalty for our sins. At the resurrection, His deity is validated and recognized, publicly pronounced by God, and He ascends to heaven. And then He will return. He will return at the second coming and establish His kingdom. And at that point, the curse gets rolled back to almost completely. Now, those not it's not fully reversed during the millennium because those who are born to the tribulation saints who survive are still born with sin natures. But in terms of the environment, in terms of other factors, in terms of governmental rule, there will be perfect environment, although those born during the millennium will be born with a sin nature. But He, the, Jesus Christ, as the second Adam, is perfect man, and He is able as man then to fulfill the creation covenant. And so all of human history, in a sense, is God working step by step, age by age, demonstrating different truths about Himself through each, each dispensation. Church age demonstrating that it is God who does everything through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for the believer, taking man from the point of the fall to the point where there is a regenerate earth and a redeemed society under the head of the Davidic King who is the perfect God-man who then fulfills that function. That's what it's all about. And it, it is in this procedure that God is then glorified. And that's how the Old Testament fits in. And where we are in, in this study is that Israel has failed and Judah has failed. And in 586 B.C. they are taken out 
in divine discipline. And of course, the major question that is facing the Jews at that time, that faces any people who go through a major catastrophe and period of, of extreme adversity, is God is still in control? Is the God we worship? Is He's really more powerful than these circumstances? Are, are the question they would be asking, is God really God or is the God of the Babylonians the true God and, and, and more powerful than Yahweh whom we worship? And so Daniel and Ezekiel are written in order to demonstrate this, this principle to the Jews and to give them renewed confidence and hope that there is a future for Israel. The promises that God made to Israel in the Abrahamic covenant, in the Palestinian covenant, the real estate covenant, in the Davidic covenant are going to be eventually fulfilled and God will literally fulfill them. And that's the nature of a covenant. A covenant is a contract. And just like any contract that you and I enter into, whether it's a a contract for a loan, a contract to purchase a house, a car, uh, some other form of legal contract, once the contract is signed, you've agreed on the terms and the meaning of the terms. And sometimes if you have a couple of corporations entering into an extensive agreement and they might have a contract that's several hundred pages in length, at the end of that contract you'll find a glossary. And in that glossary or lexicon, they'll list all the key terms that are in the contract and specifically uh, define each term. So there's no misunderstanding as to what the terms mean. So you can't come in a year later or two years later and allegorize or uh, turn the, the terms into figures of speech and say, well, by, let's say, a car payment, you've entered into a, to an agreement to pay out your car in 60 months. And you say, well, month doesn't really mean month. It means year. And I just have to make my car payment on the first of every year. Now, we know we can't do that. But that's exactly what almost every theological system other than dispensationalism does with the Old Testament covenants. They try to come back and say, Israel failed, so God just dumped Israel and uh, replaces them with the church. And so instead of fulfilling the terms literally and physically, God's just going to apply them spiritually to the church. That's called allegorical interpretation. And that's all they're doing is saying, well, God made a covenant now. He goes back and redefines the terms. So that doesn't work in the human realm and it certainly wouldn't work with God. If that's true, then we would have a difficult time with the immutability of God. Now, as we come to the events that we're looking at in Daniel and Ezekiel, we have to orient ourselves time-wise. So we'll look at the last five kings of Judah. Judah goes out under divine discipline in 586 B.C. The last five kings, first of all, Josiah from 640 to 609, Josiah is a good king. There is a tremendous reformation that takes place under Josiah, but it's more of a top-down reformation. In other words, it affects the, the upper levels of leadership. It is sort of a government-induced reformation. But at the grassroots level of the people, they do not turn away from the Baal worship, the fertility cults, the Asherim. And so there is still tremendous amount of reversionism and pagan thought in the nation. Josiah is briefly succeeded by Jehoahaz, who reigns for about three months in 609, and then he is, he is taken out of power and replaced by Jehoiakim, who is the brother of Josiah, who's on the throne from 609 to 597. It's during his time that around 606 that you have the battle, or 605, the battle at Carchemish, where Nebuchadnezzar, Carchemish is north of Israel. It's up in, um, it's up in, It's up in uh, Syria. And Pharaoh Necho, the, the Egyptians had basically become a dominant power for about a five-year, five or six-year period from about 612 down to 606. And they are tr- being challenged by the Babylonians who've been united and, and brought to power by Nabopolassar, who is the uh, uh, father of Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar is the king, or, I mean, excuse me, commander-in-chief of the army, and he goes into battle with, with uh, Pharaoh Necho at Carchemish and just devastates the Egyptian army and is in hot pursuit, uh, seizing the initiative as they flee southward down right through the middle of Judea. And as he heads south, he decides to, to take a few captives out of Jerusalem. And it's at this time that he discovers that his father um, has died and that he has to get back to Babylon as fast as he can in order to secure 
the, uh, uh, secure the throne and secure his inheritance. So he takes with him a number of captives, and these are uh, include Daniel and the three men. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. We'll just do a brief overview to catch the emphasis and importance of Daniel. Now, Jehoiakim is the king during this time. And Jehoiakim tries to revolt against the Babylonian suzerainty, and he is disciplined for that. He's finally taken out, and he's replaced by Josiah's, another son of Josiah's, Jehoiakim, who reigns, reigns briefly, and then he's, he tries to rebel. He tries to get aid from the Egyptians against the Babylonians, and of course, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like that. So uh, Jehoiakim is removed and taken as a captive back to Babylon, and another son of Josiah's, Zedekiah, is placed on the throne, and he just takes him further into paganism. He's on the throne from, that should be uh, 607, or excuse me, that should be from 697 to 586 uh, B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar, there's, there's an invasion, there are three invasions by Nebuchadnezzar, 605, 597, and 586. In 586, he just destroys the temple, burns it to the ground, removes everything, devastates Jerusalem, burns the fields, and just takes all the upper classes captive into, into um, Babylon. So everybody's wondering, well, is there really a future? Does God really control history? And turn over to Daniel 2. Last time when we looked at, at Daniel, I answered several questions because Daniel is a prophetic book. is key to understanding the veracity of, the veracity of Scripture. There's a prediction in the Old Testament in Isaiah 44 that Cyrus would come. Now, this is interesting because in Isaiah 44, that's written 200 years earlier and specifically names who will eventually deliver the Jews out of their Babylonian captivity. Now, last time we asked certain questions about Daniel. We asked when was it written? Was it written, as the Bible claims, during Daniel's lifetime between 586 and 539 B.C. or 165 B.C.? And we looked at various issues related to that and, and demonstrating from the language, from uh, various aspects of internal evidence in the book that it was written when it was claimed to have been written. And we saw that the date of Daniel is important for three reasons. First of all, the sovereignty of God is at stake. If this isn't true, then how do we know God really controls history? Secondly, the nature of the Bible is under attack. Is there true revelation and true prophecy, or is this just written as history? See, if the, Daniel wasn't written until 165 B.C., then it's really history, it's not prophecy. And then third, it, it, the issue is the person of Jesus Christ is challenged. And the reason we say that is because Jesus clearly affirms the historical veracity of Daniel and that Daniel was prophecy. So if Jesus was wrong, if it was, wasn't written until after the fact instead of before the fact, then Jesus was wrong and Jesus was not, therefore, perfect. So this is very important. We went through all the evidence for that last time. Looking at the earliest manuscripts indicate the very real possibility that Daniel was written uh, much earlier than 165. It's, it's possible that, that the oldest manuscript we have would go back to 200 B.C. We saw that the language of the book, even though it includes Greek terms and Persian terms, it's clearly understandable within the historical context of the period that these words were in the language and there were certain terms that were fluid. You can go to, if you go to Russia today, you'll find that many terms in Russian are borrowed from English. They were borrowed from the French during the time of Catherine the Great. They were borrowed from uh, other European languages. And the same was true in the ancient world that because of commerce, many languages and loan words went from one culture to another. Uh, Greek, Greek words, Persian words, and so this is not an oddity and would not indicate a late date for the book. And third, they, the liberals claim there are numerous historical blunders, and uh, we identified a couple of those and that they really weren't historical blunders. And then we began to look at the outline of the book in terms of the history of, uh, or the prophecy that's there. In 1.1 1, 1 to 1.21, we have a history of the prophet Daniel, and we, we learn who he is and how he comes to be in, in Babylon. From 2.1 to 7.28, the language shifts 
And this is mostly in Aramaic. And it is during this time that we have the great, some of the great prophecies in the book of Daniel. And they all relate to the Gentile kingdoms and the Gentile nations. And then the third major division of the book goes back to Hebrew. See, Aramaic is a Gentile language, so that's appropriate for de- describing, revealing information on the history of the Gentiles. And then the history of the Isra- Israel returns to Hebrew. Look at Daniel 2. Daniel 2 is the great image that appears. Now, I've used the word image several times. Go back to Genesis. As soon as you see the word image in Scripture, one thing that ought to come to your mind is man was created in the image and likeness of God. So when we come to Daniel chapter 2 and we hear about this vision that that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has about the great statue that has the head of gold and the... uh, breast and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron. One thing that should come to our mind, and it's in the form of a man, one thing that should come to our mind is, well, does this have something to do, is, is, is God somehow relating this back to the image purpose of man? And I think that there is something there that God wants us to pay attention to, that man is failing to fulfill the image function and wants to assert himself in terms of his own image. And if we contrast... And we'll do it a little bit. This is a chart. I don't expect you to take down all these details. But if you do a comparison between Daniel 2 and Daniel chapter 7, which are the two major visions that Daniel has related to these, related to these uh, kingdoms. Let me see if I can pull this pointer up here. We have a, notice the head of gold here the breasts and arms of silver, everything here is a valuable metal, gold, silver, bronze, and it becomes less valuable as you go through, to go from top to bottom on the, on the image, which is going through history. Each kingdom is less powerful and less valuable, is what God is saying. It comes down to the legs of iron and then finally the feet that are a mix of iron and clay. Now, what we see in this image is man's kingdoms as man views them, that they are something of significance, they are something of value. Man, man is something in his own eyes. And in Daniel chapter 7, these kingdoms are represented as beasts, a lion with the wings of an eagle, a bear raised on one side, a leopard with four heads, and then a horrible fourth beast who has iron teeth and claws of iron. Now, this represents the kingdom of man as God sees the kingdom of man, that it has an essential bestial quality. It is violent, it is ugly, it is horrible, it is not of value. So Daniel 2 reflects on these kingdoms as, God, as man sees them, and Daniel 7 shows them in terms of their, their nature as God sees them. Now in Daniel 2, as you have the statue with the head of gold, that represents the Babylonian kingdom. So this first column here on the left gives you each individual aspect or part of the of the image. Then there is the description or interpretation in the second column. We'll just skip over that. Don't pay attention to that column for our purposes this morning. And then the middle column identifies each of these parts in terms of their uh, their uh, what which empire they refer to. So the head of gold is the Babylon, represents the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar and his successors, which was taken out and destroyed by Cyrus in 539 B.C. when his armies invaded. That leads us to the second kingdom, represented in, the, in Daniel 2, with the breasts and arms of silver. The arms indicate two different aspects. It was a combination kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And it was known because the Persians were dominant. The Persians had defeated the Medes. It was known as the Persian Empire. And this lasts from 539 to 331 B.C. And it is under their auspices through uh, Cyrus and later Artaxerxes' command to Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the, the walls of Jerusalem and that the, the, the Jews are returned to the land. The temple is rebuilt and the fortifications around Jerusalem are restored. Then the third element of the prophecy refers in the, in the image refers to the belly and the thighs of bronze. And this refers to the Greek, the Greek empire from 331 
down to 63 B.C., then the legs of iron represent ancient Rome. The feet, the iron, and the clay, the iron represents certain elements of the earlier Roman Empire. Clay represents certain newer, weaker elements. And this is the future revived Roman Empire. So this is laid out in Daniel chapter 2. And this is given around 580 B.C., I would suggest. Somewhere in that time, Daniel has this, this vision. So there is clear prophecy in Daniel. He prophesies the fall of the Babylonian Empire and each successive empire. Now, when you come to Daniel 7, Daniel clarifies who some of these are. He does not do that in the interpretation in Daniel 2. In Daniel 2, they're just identified as 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th kingdom, but in Daniel chapter 7, they are identified as the Persian kingdom, the Greek kingdom, and the Roman kingdom. Now, you get into Daniel 7, and you have the, the lion with the wings of an eagle represents the Babylonian kingdom. Then the bear raised up on one side. This indicates one side stronger than the other. Uh, that is the uh, that is the Persian kingdom. The, he's holding this these three ribs, which represent three major battles that the uh, Persian Empire went uh, gained victory in, which consolidated their empire. And then there's a leopard with four heads and four wings on its back. Now, the leopard is Greece under Alexander, Alexander the Great, and when Alexander died, the kingdom, his empire, was divided among his four generals. So there was the, uh, the kingdom of Greece, the kingdom of Syria, the kingdom under Ptolemy down in Egypt, and then the Persian area. So it was subdivided into four sections. That's why the leopard then has four heads. It's that breakup of the Greek empire into four sections. That's replaced by the fourth kingdom, which is uh, characterized by iron teeth and claws of bronze. That, again, is Rome. And then the future Roman kingdom is represented by the ten kings and the ten horns on the, on the goat. So that is, that's comparing the prophecy of Daniel 2 with Daniel 7. And that lays out the history of the Gentile kingdoms in history. And eventually the, they will be destroyed. The kingdom... Uh, I mean, the, the, when Daniel sees the image in Daniel chapter chapter two, what happens is that as he as he explains the the um, the significance of the of this huge image that he sees in Daniel two thirty four, he says to Nebuchadnezzar, "You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them." So the kingdom of man is destroyed by this stone that is cut out without hands. In other words, it's not cut from a human. It doesn't come from a human source. It is a divine source. And this, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ returning at the second advent at Armageddon, and he destroys all of the human kingdoms and sets up his own kingdom in its place, the millennial kingdom. So that's the end of the history of Gentile kingdom. Now, one of the most important prophecies in Daniel is in Daniel chapter 9. So turn over a few chapters and let's look at this. This is one of the most detailed and precise prophecies given in the Scriptures. Daniel has been meditating on Jeremiah, reading through the scrolls of Jeremiah, and in there he discovers that there's about 70 years decreed by God in relationship to Jerusalem. This is de described in Daniel 9, verse 2. Now the way this works out, in case you're You've played with the numbers and it somehow doesn't work. It works out in two ways. 605 B.C. is when the first captives were taken out of Jerusalem. The first group returns to the land in approximately 535, 536 B.C. during that that overlap period. So that's roughly, that's your 70 years there from the time they go out to the time they return. The primary reference, though, for the, for the 70 years is that in relation to the temple. In 586 B.C., the nation goes out under divine discipline, the temple is destroyed, and it is in approximately 516 B.C., that they begin to lay the foundation for the temple. Now, the temple isn't completed for about 60 years because they're in rebellion, they're in reversionism, they're problems. That's what Haggai is all about. The, the prophet Haggai is challenging the people.
to put their focus back on doctrine and to finish the job. And this is a major issue. This is why Ezra goes back under the first return in 536, and Nehemiah culminates the process at the end, and we'll get into a look at that post-exilic period when we wrap up next time. But it is, when you talk about the 70-year captivity, this is the gap that you're talking about, either in terms of the 70 years from the first deportation until the first return, but primarily it's from the destruction of the temple in 586 to 70 years later when they began to lay the foundation for the temple in 516. Now, in Daniel 9, as Daniel has been praying to the Lord, he realizes that the 70 years that have been decreed are just about up. They first went out in 605, and he can, he can add up, and he knows that it's, it's now into the Persian period. It's probably about 537 at this point, And he says, well, Lord, if you have decreed this, then there should be a return to the land. And look at verse 20. He says, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, which of course refers to the temple mount in Jerusalem, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, this is the angel Gabriel, then the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision previously came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. So notice the detail he gives. It's not, he's not just isolated in some kind of fuzzy, mystical state. He's saying this happened at a particular point in time when I was praying about the uh, time of the evening offering. So it's about uh, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And he gave me instruction. And he talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I've now come forth to, to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you. And so we learn something about angels and how angels are used by God to answer prayer. I've come to tell you for your highly esteemed, so give heed to the message, you gain understanding from the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, when it talks about 70 weeks in the Hebrew, this is really 70, 70 periods of seven. So you can multiply that out and that comes to 490 periods, whatever that is. Now, we know that that has to be years because of the several things that take place in the context. Now, what this tells us is that the first 69 of these 70 years relate to Christ's first coming. The first 69 weeks relate to Christ's first coming and the, first coming, and the final week of years, which is seven years, relates to Christ's second coming. The, last seven, the 70th week of Daniel's 70 weeks, the, se, the final week of seven years, relates to the great tribulation called the time of Jacob's trouble in the Old Testament and is designed to bring the most intense form of divine discipline on the nation Israel to bring them back to the gospel. And at the end of the tribulation period, Israel is regenerate. They turn as a nation to the Lord and all Israel is saved according to the Scriptures. And so at that point, they all enter into the, all Israel enters into the millennium saved. Now there are six items that Daniel mentions in this 24th verse. He says there are 70 weeks that have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now that defines who, who the prophecy is for. Your people would be Israel and your holy city would be Jerusalem. So it gives us a specific time frame. And then the, there's a purpose for this. This is the divine plan. First of all, to finish the transgression, which means to bring to an end, literally in the Hebrew, it's bring to an end the transgression, and that relates to the cross. At the, at the cross, Christ is going to bring all of this to an end when his, with his payment of sin. Secondly, to make an end of sin. Now, this is not to remove sin from human history or everything else. Ultimately, that is fulfilled when Christ deals with everything at the cross. I mean, at the second coming, when he destroys the Antichrist and establishes his kingdom. Third, to make atonement for iniquity, which is the death of Christ on the cross. Fourth, to bring in everlasting righteousness. That, of course, does not occur until Christ comes at the second coming, second advent to inaugurate the millennial kingdom. Fifth, to seal up vision and prophecy. And that has the sense of bringing all prophecies to an end. So it's not just related to first advent, but also second advent prophecies. And all the prophecies related to Israel will be fulfilled in this period of 70 weeks. 
and finally to anoint the most holy place. And I take it that that is a reference to the millennial temple that Ezekiel refers to, to anoint the most holy place, which is the focal point of the worship of the nation during their the millennial kingdom under the Davidic rule of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Now here's the, the framework, the outline of the decree. At this point, you have the decree to restore. Verse 24, or verse 25 states, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree... Now, doesn't this passage does not specify what decree that will be. From the issuing of a decree to do two things, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So if you add those together, that comes up to 69 weeks. And that's this period right here from the decree to restore until Messiah the Prince comes. Now, we know from a study of history and from our knowledge that there were three different decrees related to the Jews going back to the land, that the one that this is referring to is Artaxerxes' decree that's referenced in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8, when Artaxerxes gave... uh, Uh, Nehemiah a command to go back to Jerusalem and finish the building process and finish completion of the walls and the fortress and the defense. That's what's going on here in the passage, that there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks and it, that is the city, will be built again with plaza and moat. This refers to all the defensive structures around the city, even in times of distress. So it's not just the decree of Cyrus to go back to the land and start rebuilding the temple. It is not just another decree to send more people back. It is specifically this decree from Artaxerxes to Nehemiah to rebuild the walls and the fortifications of Jerusalem. And we know that that can be dated to March 5th, 444 B.C. From that time, and we can figure out the... And we'll go through the process in a minute. From that date, figuring it all up, we know that the terminus, the end point of those 69 weeks, comes to March 30th, A.D. 33, which is the date of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem in Luke 19. And it is just three or four days later that Jesus is cut off, the Messiah is cut off, that is, he is crucified, and at that point, this 69 weeks terminates. There's There's a gap here. The church age begins, and we don't know how long that is going to last, but there is a separation of time between the 69th week and the 70th week because Israel rejected their Messiah. Now let's look at verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, so there's the 7 seven and 62, so it's after these 62 weeks or after the 69th week, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come. Now that is a reference to Rome. So the prince who is to come is going to come out of the revived Roman Empire, but this is the early empire, not the later empire. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and that was fulfilled in 70 A.D. when the city and the temple were destroyed under Titus. And its end will come with a flood. That's not a literal water flood. That's just in terms of it's, it's, uh, it's going to come quickly. Its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. Now, in verse 27, which comes in at the end of the gap. Now it's going to talk about the coming prince and some undefined time in the future. And he will make a firm covenant with the many. The many there is a reference to Israel. He is the Antichrist, the prince who will come. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. It is this covenant, when the Antichrist signs this covenant, this is the starting point of that last seven-year period. It is not the rapture of the church. This is what starts the seven-year period. It occurs after the rapture, but there will probably be some transition period in there. could be a few weeks, could be as long as a few months. I don't think it will be very long. If you go back and you look at all the other dispensations in history, there's always a little bit of a transition period and it's not real clear how long it is. For example, between the cross and Pentecost, you had 50 days of a transition period before the Holy Spirit comes. So there's a transition period there between the rapture 
and the signing of the peace treaty between the Antichrist and Israel. And he will make a covenant with the many for one week. That means it will last for the seven-year period. And in the middle of the week, that is three and a half years into this seven-year period, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete greed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So what that is talking about is that halfway into this seven-year period, the Antichrist is going to desecrate the temple. This is the tribulation temple that is built. Uh, it is not a holy temple. It is an unholy temple because it's, it's built by the Jews to reflect Judaism. They haven't accepted the Lord. None of that's happened. But this temple has to be rebuilt by at least the midpoint of the tribulation. Now, it doesn't have to be built in, in its entirety. It just has to be built enough to where it is functional. So it literally may not even, they may not even start rebuilding the temple until uh, just a few months before this event takes place. Uh, Herod's temple, I can't remember when they began building Herod's temple. I think it was around 5 or 6 A.D. But it still wasn't complete in 70 A.D. when they destroyed it. So the temple doesn't have to be completed in all of its dimensions and everything uh, by the by this time. It just has to have a, an altar, a holy of holies, and an entryway where they can uh, they will restore the sacrifice. Of course, this is all tribulation under a reversionistic, rebellious Israel. It's not until after the Messiah returns at the end of the seven-year period that a new uh, that a new temple, the millennial temple, which is a holy temple, will be built. Now, the reason, as we go through the computations for this, we know that these years must be figured on the basis of 360-day years and not 365-and-a-quarter-day years, which we have in our Gregorian calendar. We know this because in Daniel 9.27, it uses the term half-week, time, times, and half a time. That's time is one, like one year, times is two years, and a half a time. So you have one plus two plus a half equals three-and-a-half. Daniel 7.25, 12.7, Revelation 12.4. Revelation 12.6 and Revelation 11.3 describes this same period of three and a half years as 1,260 days. Now, if you start doing your computations and divide three and a half into 1,260 days and you come up with 360-day years. Revelation 11.2 and 13.5 uses the phrase 42 months. Thus, 42 months equals 1,260 days, and that equals time times half time plus half a week, and therefore a month equals 30 days, and a year equals 360 days. Now, that's a lot of math for most of you this early in the morning, but that gives you the computation. So, prophecy years, by comparing these passages, uh, are 360-day years. If you look at this in terms of Daniel's computation, you take the 69 weeks and multiply that by seven. You come out by seven years, uh, seven seven periods. 69 times seven is 490, or it should be 483. And then you take 483 and multiply that by 360. You come out with 173,880 days. So from March 5th, 444 B.C and you add 173,880 days, you come to March 30th, A.D. 33, which is the uh, date of Christ's triumphal entry. Now, as a verification of this, if you take 444 B.C. to A.D. 33, you have 476 years. Now, if you add 444 and 33, somebody out there is going to say, well, that's 477. There's no zero got to take the zero out. So that's 476 years. Multiply 476 years times 365 and a quarter days. Then you come up with 173,855 days. Now you add to that the number of days between March 5th and March 30th, which is 25 days. You come up with 173,880 days. So that, once again, confirms the, the, uh, the figure. So this is an extremely precise prophecy that is fulfilled down to the day. Jesus Christ enters on that day and it is just four or five days later that the Messiah is crucified. So there is true predictive prophecy in Daniel. Now the purpose of Daniel has been to give the people a prophetic hope. 
in, in Ezekiel, the purpose of Ezekiel is to explain the glories that will come. Now, in the first part of Ezekiel, you have prophecies of judgment against Judah and Jerusalem from chapter 1 through chapter 24. And then from chapter 25 to chapter 32, there are prophecies against all of the various Gentile nations and how God is going to bring them to judgment during this time culminating in the battle of Armageddon. And then from chapter 33 through chapter 48, there are detailed prophecies given about Israel's final restoration to the land and what things are going to look like in the Millennial Kingdom. And this is a fascinating section to evaluate. Let's just look at one section starting in chapter 40 where there is a description, detailed description of worship in the millennium. Now, there are five distinct purposes given in this section for the millennial temple. Sometimes people say, well, why is there going to be a millennial temple and why is there this restoration of animal sacrifices? There are five reasons given in this section. First of all, there is a restoration temple to demonstrate the holiness of God. It is the holiness of God that has been challenged through all of man's rebelliousness through all of the ages. And it is in this millennial temple that there is going to be the place of, of the Messiah, the presence of God on earth. And this will be where all of the nations will come to worship God. So there will be a demonstration through all of the sacrifices, through all of the pomp and circumstance of God's holiness. Secondly, it will provide a dwelling place for the divine glory. In the early part of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 4, we see the removal. He sees a vision where the Shekinah glory of God goes from the uh, holy place and it goes to the exterior of Jerusalem and it goes to the mountains and then it departs. That God's presence has left Jerusalem. And the Shekinah glory never returned to the temple. When they rebuilt the temple under Zedekiah, uh, under Zerubbabel at the return, they, and under ne- Ezra, the glory of the Lord never returns. So, so if they had an Ark of the Covenant in the uh, post-exilic temple, it wasn't associated with the Shekinah glory. It's not the, the, the physical wood box covered in gold that has value. It was that this was where God dwelt. And so from the Exodus up through the departure of the Shekinah glory in, in Ezekiel's vision before the collapse of the, of the kingdom of Judah, the presence of God was with the Ark of the Covenant. But once the Shekinah glory left, it's just a box covered in gold. It's, don't, don't make it into some mystical, magical thing like, like Spielberg did in the in Raiders of the Lost Ark. In and of itself, it had these powers that were there only because God was there. When, when David is transporting it into Jerusalem and, and the, the cart hits a bump, and the wagon jostles and, uh, and the, the man reaches out to stabilize it and he dies instantly, it's because the ark is still the dwelling place of God and he has touched what he should not touch. And so he has to die instantly. But once the presence of God is gone, it's just another box. So there's going to be a dwelling place for the divine glory. Third, there will be a place to perpetuate the memorial of sacrifice. Now, a lot of people have problems with the restoration of animal sacrifice But if you think about it, if you come to the Millennial Kingdom, which is perfect environment under the perfect rule of the Davidic King, there's going to be very little opportunity for overt sin on earth. I mean, you're not going to be able to go down to places in the big cities and have crime-ridden streets and all kinds of other things going on and find all the drug dealers out, uh, all the pimps and prostitutes and everything else. That's not going to be anywhere on the earth. So... So in terms of the overtness of of sin and evil on the planet, that's going to be gone. So there's not going to be much evidence around for the horribleness of sin. So how are you going to remind the citizens of the millennial kingdom who are born in the kingdom with a sin nature who still need to be saved, how are you going to remind them of the horrible nature of sin? It is through this visible demonstration of the, the killing of the sacrificial animals daily that is going to give them this visible demonstration of the horror of sin. So that is the purpose of the restoration of the sacrifice and it is a memorial for Israel. Just as the church has the memorial of the Lord's table, there will be the memorial sacrifice for Israel. It will provide a center for the divine government. This is where the throne of David will be in the temple. And then fifth, it will provide a victory over the curse of sin because it is from this center point of the the temple 
that Ezekiel sees a river flowing and it is this living river that flows eastward into the Dead Sea and there's it's life-giving water and it is also a reminder and it's a picture of what will be in the eternal state when out of the throne of God there's a river flowing just as we had go back into Eden and you have out of Eden there flowed one river flowed and then it split into four. So there is always this river of life motif and this imagery from the flowing of the water. Now in Ezekiel 40 to 46, there are detailed descriptions given. We just don't have time to go through it, but if you take the time and you read, it is very precise. Look at, um, let's look at uh, verse 5. Sorry, verse 5. Behold, there was a wall on the outside of the temple all around, and in the man's hand was a measuring rod of six cubits, each of which was a cubit and a handbreadth. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one rod, and the height, one rod. He went to the gate which faced east, went up to its steps and measured the threshold of the gate, one rod in width, and the other threshold was one one rod in width. And the guard room was one rod long and one rod wide. There were five cubits between the guard room. You read through this, it's like reading a blueprint, the, the description of a blueprint. There is tremendous detail here. This isn't just some sort of, of Im, uh, a vague image or figurative uh, expression there or metaphor for the return of God. It's too precise. It gives you every single detail. You could go out and take this as, as a blueprint and build the temple. Now, this is one chart I pulled in from the uh, Dallas Seminary's Bible Knowledge Commentary. As, um, as I read through, and I didn't have the time this last week to handle all the interpretive problems in this, but this is basically the description of what things will look like in the Millennial Kingdom. What you have is in this area, this is the center of Israel. Apparently, there's going to be a tremendous geophysical event after the return of the Lord that is going to elevate a plateau in the center part of Israel that's about 50 miles square, according to one author. The figures differ because there's a lot of debate as to the exact length of the cubit and the rod in this. Everything from 50 50 miles by 50 miles down to about uh, 30 by 30. So it's somewhere in between, but it's an enormous area. And this uh, blow-up here shows what, what the temple area will look like. In the very center will be the temple, and the measurements of that go from a quarter mile by a quarter mile to one, one mile by one mile. So there's, once again, there's a lot of debate, and I don't have the time to go through all the issues there. And I haven't, I'm not sure I've resolved that in my own mind, but it, it's going to look something like this. There's the center point where the sanctuary is, surrounded by the priest's inheritance. The Levites have a portion in the top third of this area, in the south, there is the city of Jerusalem in the center part, and then there is land for the citizens to each side of the city. So it is this square area in the center that is the focal point of the, the temple. This is surrounded by the prince's portion land to the east and to the west, and then the tribes are given their inheritance, and they are, they are horizontal strips. They're horizontal parallel strips given to the tribe of Benjamin, Simeon, Issachar, Zebulun, and then Judah to the north. So this is what the millennial kingdom and the topography and the layout of the land will be like at the restoration in the millennial kingdom. So Ezekiel 40 through 48 describes what the millennium is going to look like when the new covenant is brought in and that Israel is going to be restored to the land in their full glory with a new temple, with a new sacrificial system, with a new priesthood all of which will be geared towards a memorialization of what the Messiah did. So the point of Daniel and Ezekiel is to give God's revelation to the people who are under this tremendous adversity. They're out of the land in discipline, saying that God is still in control of history. The God who controls history, the broad sweep of history, must also control the minutia of history. And so you can continue to trust Him and rely upon Him that even though you are going through extreme adversity, even though you have no clue how all of this is going to work out, you can know that in the end, this is what God is doing in His plan and purpose in human history. So this is the message that comforted the Jews when they were out of the land during the exile. And then they began to return in 536 B.C. And we will look at the return in the post-exilic period in our final lesson on the Old Testament orientation next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for your work in history that you are a God who controls all events and that 
that as we look out upon our, our world today and there's so many uncertainties and so many things that threaten from economic issues to war issues to political issues, we know that you are in control and you are bringing everything along to fit your plan and your purposes for the ultimate judgment of man and restoration of your kingdom on the earth. Father, we pray that uh, if there's anyone here this morning that is, is unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their salvation, that they would take the opportunity now to make that, that certain. That all of these things point to the coming of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. That He paid the penalty so that salvation is not dependent on who we are, what we do, what church we belong to, or any other human factor, but is totally dependent upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to remember the things we've studied, to be challenged and encouraged by these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.